So, Bob, we have a bunch of emails about preoccupied attachment okay. and borderline and other kinds of things. And I grouped them together from the patrons. And I thought we would read them on the air and answer them. What do you say, Bob? Let's read them. <laughs> this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am uh, Bob. I'm your friend from graduate school, a therapist in practice here in Seattle. Yeah. So before we get into things, just major trigger warning, as with all of our episodes, we get into various different difficult topics. So be warned. And if we get into an issue that you think, uh oh, this might trigger me, I would recommend turning it off. So, okay. Upper tier patron Joyce from Los Angeles, she says, does, does a path to recovery from borderline personality disorder have to begin as a solitary journey? I often get the impression that in order to be a secure adult, one has to be able to establish that secure base within themselves by themselves. Is this born from Western idealization of independence? This can often feel painfully lonely, especially during the pandemic. Bob, what do you think? I think it's a great question. And I think the answer, the short answer is, yeah, it might be a response to uh, the way we in Western whatever culture you know, value independence, but it's not realistic. I think that um, you can't develop secure attachment by yourself. Like you actually need a relationship and a corrective experience in the relationship in order for that to actually happen. So, um, uh, so, so, okay. So, you know, I did this thing called DBT and it's aimed at helping people with borderline personality disorder and it's good. It's all been lots of good data behind it. It's been researched and shown to be effective, but DBT is a, a talk therapy, which means that there is a relationship with a personal counselor. And then there's this group skills training, but let's let that go for just a second in the relationship with the personal counselor is the arena for corrective experience. Now it turns out that by that, by itself, that is probably insufficient to optimize a person's success and their growth and their uh, satisfaction in life. And um, that, that, what the DBT research shows is that skills training is um, a necessary component to that. And skills training is like taking a class and life skills. And they're basic life skills that everybody needed. We all needed to get when we were growing up and a lot of us uh, didn't get. And so um, DBT skills training is aimed at that. That said, um, I heard Marcia say this once. I've said this on the podcast before, and it actually is what I believe. And it's also a paraphrasing, paraphrasing of what Freud said, and that is, when you get down to it, love is the cure. And I think what that means is that in relationship with, in this case, say therapist, is wherein the corrective experience is going to take place. You cannot do it alone. It doesn't mean that you can't learn DBT skills or you can't learn really any skills on your own. It means that probably those are insufficient. Now, one of the things I notice in me is that, okay, I notice in me that I have a tendency to distort um information. And I can do that in my experience in relationships with others. And oftentimes what's corrective for me is to learn and then relearn and then relearn that my view of things, uh, while it might be habitual, is also a distortion of how things are. So whereas I might think, like let's just say I think uh, Colleen is just completely frustrated with me and just hates me today. All right, fine. I had that thought and you know it comes through my own distortions. It's only in checking the facts with her and um, 
sort of checking in at the home office that, yeah, maybe she doesn't love everything I do or say, but that she still actually loves and cares for me. Um, that's where the thing, that's where my corrective experience lays, lies, lies, lays, is. So, um, I think I'm sort of rambling a bit, but I think the answer to the person's question is, um, you can't do it alone. So for you, you're saying that if you were, you're an expert on DBT, you're an expert on helping people. So presumably, according to Appetier, patron Joyce's ideas that have, that Joyce seems to be uh, rejecting wisely <laughs> is that you're supposed to be able to do this yourself. And if anyone could do it your, their, themselves, it's you. And you're saying that you need, you need Colleen to help you recover. You need your therapist. You can't just therapize yourself mm. and, have secure attachment and the benefits thereof. That is a fact. I can't even learn by reading a self-help book. I can't do it. First off, I can't get myself to stick in them. I'll commit to a relationship with the person, but I can't get myself to commit to a book. And second is when I read that stuff, I will distort it. I'll put my own spin on it and I'll do it without even noticing. Like what? Um, let's see. When I was learning DBT, I was reading this manual written by the developer, uh, treatment developer. And one of the things that in the manual, it's in this manual, it says um, um, that clients need therapists to want to be in therapy. And what I took that to mean at the time was that um, if I'm unhappy with therapy, then the client has this responsibility to me um, and that they should shape up their whatever behavior it is. And um, what I've discovered <laughs> through lots and lots and lots of supervision, which is relational, um, is that that is a distortion of what's meant and written in that book. And it's a distortion that's based on my own experiences of um, rejection and harshness in my youth. That when I read that sentence, what it means to me is different from what, it, what the author meant when she wrote it. And what other people would take from it, it's it is she is in, in clients' interest for therapists to l like to and want to be in relationship with them. It totally is. But I think the way my brain is lapped to spin that is um, clients owe therapists certain kind of you know whatever, and um, it's it's uh, one sided. And when you work in supervision, wisdom of the supervisor rubs off on you, but also the relationship makes you feel safer to kind of go back and forth around the idea. Yes, yeah, both both are true. What I learned okay. most in my most supervision in most of my good supervision has been how to soften, how to soften. Uh -huh. And if if there isn't compassion, then I'm missing something vital. I'm missing something essential. Right. So without supervision, you might have the idea of softening. You'd say, I need to soften. But the uh, reactivity and isolation would distort your thinking yes. and you would you would land on a overly harsh mindset and behavior and feel like, well, yeah, this is right. And I have all the clinical justifications right. thereof. I'm, I'm very knowledgeable. I've read I've read all the things. And similarly, in self-help, if you're just reading a mm -hmm. self-help book or you're just trying to establish a, a quote-unquote secure base by yourself is actually a, is a 
contradiction, but <laughs> um, that you would distort uh, many of the principles. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that the idea that we can. So what is a secure base? Well, a secure base, if we use our early relationships as an analogy to our adult relationships, is that when we are 18 months old, we are desperate for, instinctually desperate, neurologically desperate, physically desperate, for a caregiver that we can depend on, at least one person, maybe a set of people, that we know through experience that that person has our back and is attuned to us, knows us, will protect us under most circumstances. When we check in with them eye contact-wise, they notice us, they look at us, and they, they reflect our emotions. We, f- we feel safe. And so when we go off onto the playground and someone pushes us down and we start crying, we immediately run back to our secure base. Our secure base makes us feel better, and then we go back to the playground. And as adults, we will venture off into work or into something risky or we try to do something that is a little hard for us, or we have an emotion, or we feel hurt, or something Something happens, and we run back to our secure base, which is our spouse, or our friends, or a therapist, or, or our parents, or whomever it is that has said it, one person or a set of people that is the secure base. And as an adult, when we do this, it's we don't necessarily run and cling to someone's uh, you know, apron, uh, we might we might do that, but we might also just check in emotionally. Just, hey, I had a bad day today. Does this person stop what they're doing? Do they care? Do they have eye contact? Do they listen? Are they attuned? Um, are they safe? Do they beat you up? Do they listen well enough? And then we feel safe, and then we're able to venture off into independent. Uh, activities, and then we something bad happens, and we run back to our secure base. We're never not like that. It's not like there's a you turn thirteen and suddenly like you don't have that human need anymore. It just morphs into an adult version of it. But in in some ways, you could say it doesn't really morph because we still need physical affection. We still need skin on skin uh, contact. You know that's why we shake people's hands. That's why we hug. That's why a lot of uh, spouses have sex um, because it's important for feeling or cuddling, you know, it's important for feeling <clears throat> that neurological uh, need. And so it's why we kiss, you know, like it's kind of a weird thing. Like why would we kiss as an adult, as an adult? It's um, not logical, you know, but it's uh, reminiscent of our very first attachment, which is suckling and, and being face to face with one's parents. And, and it is, gratifies it's a it's an echo of that and, and very much in 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 line of that anyway so this idea that as an adult you're supposed to heal on your own you know you'll hear these notions of like you know you can't love your you can't love other people till you love yourself and it's like okay i mean in a certain way that the premise is fine but i think the implication is get your crap together person you know go home Get your crap together, and then you can have healthy relationships. No, you need healthy relationships to have healthy relationships. <laughs> you need you need good relationships to so that you can have good relationships. You need to have safe relationships so you feel safe in relationships. You can't feel safe in relationships independently. You know, it's like you know you can't 
go on vacation to Paris while staying home. <laughs> you know, looking at pictures online uh, isn't really going to Paris. You know, you can't look at Google Street View of Paris and say you went to Paris. And no one would say that that is even close to actually going and seeing the Eiffel Tower in person or, you know, walking along the Seine in person. Um, there, you just, you got to go there. And it's the same with secure attachment and healing relationally. You have to experience the relationship and there's, there's no way to do it on your own. But along these lines, Bob, uh, in your DBT skills group, you are talking with people about things that they can do on their own, and because and, there are some things that you can do on your own. Mm-hmm. What, what's one of the things that you could share with people? Um, well, uh, one of the skill sets has, is about emotion regulation, so about changing yeah. negative emotion that I want to have less of. And so there's a whole bunch of science on how do humans change emotion, and all the treatment developer Marshall Linehan did was package it. So she just sort of read everything she could find on how people change how they feel. And she sort of packaged it together and presented this, you know, curriculum about how to change emotions. So that's one thing I can do. I can change my fear, right? So um, there's lots of different ways to do it. And which one is the best one sort of depends on the circumstance. It's not like there's one size fits all with a skill. So... um, uh so so what a person needs to do really is and it's it's kind of cognitive so it can be actually quite hard especially if i'm having intense feeling like and when i'm having intense feeling i don't have access to my good intelligence and my that part of my brain and just nobody's brain works all that well so this everything i'll say about this is true and it's also very hard to do because once emotions get going they actually want to keep going Emotions will organize thoughts and uh, and behavior around them, and those thoughts and behavior will become fuel for more emotion, and you go around in a loop. That's what a mood is. So everything that I teach my students is factually true and correct and will capture what needs done, but won't necessarily help a person with wanting to do it, which is actually why I think it's important to learn skills in a class because we're sort of pulling each other along and we're chipping away at old habits and patterns and um, um, encouraging one another as we try on new things. So, uh, but um, just naming an emotion itself is an emotion regulation skill. So literally just putting words to this is what I'm feeling and might be the words I use are feeling words like I have anger or I feel sad or um, shame is upon me, you know, or it might be more granular like I have this urge to put my eyes down on the ground or to freeze or to walk away um, or I've got this tightness in my chest or these butterflies in my stomach or I feel like I want to puke or whatever. Like our emotions are in part um, we experience them through our body sensations. So it turns out that emotions are stories that need to be told. So if I tell the story, even just to myself, I'm angry right now, I'm sad right now, my emotion is likely to be val- validated in the just the acknowledgement of that and, and go down some. So that's an emotion. That's one emotion regulation skill is learn to um, name what we feel. And so we spend a lot of time in that class about how the hell does a person even figure that out? 
Like, and so what are the bits and pieces to an emotion? There's a prompting event. There's sometimes a level of interpretation. Some, and then there's always this experience in our bodies and this expression that's experiences everything that I can see. And I'm the only one that can see it because it's inside me. And expression is what anybody else could see if they were looking at me. So a change in my facial expression, a change in my, you know, like I'm blushing, um, um, my shoulders are tense, my uh, arms are folded, I'm talking in a pointed tone of voice, right? Uh, these are all bits of expression. Um, how I, and, and, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but people in the group and maybe everyone on the planet, when you ask them, what emotion are you feeling? Uh, it's maybe particularly hard for the people in the group to even know how to answer that question all the time, yeah. unless it's something really beyond a threshold of like, yeah, I'm, I'm really angry right now. Right. But it, unless it's, if it's mild anger or mild hurt or moderate uh, anxiety about losing someone or something, there is a lot of indications that aren't being noticed or were denied or were, oppressed or suppressed by the individual yeah. because it was too hard to acknowledge those feelings when they were young or no one was there to reflect their feelings. Yeah. And so, cause the, the, the idea of just like, what, what are you feeling right now? We have this notion that everyone knows how they feel, but that that's not the it's case. It's not the case. Yeah. But, and so just knowing your emotion yeah. can help regulate, yes. can help can, can reduce the, the intensity of right. it. Just acknowledging it to you. Oh, what I'm, I'm in a bad mood right yeah. now, automatically, for some people in some situations, it'll reduce, it'll reduce. the intensity of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then they're complicated. Sometimes you have more than one emotion at the same time, and sometimes it looks like they're in conflict with one another, right? And then there's times when you have, um, when you're only aware of one particular emotion and you got something going on underneath it that sort of isn't apparent to you. Like, like um, so being able to name your emotion um, will... Um, um, suggest what skills to use if you want to reduce it. That doesn't mean that you have to want to or that you have to do anything about it. Um, sometimes we want to feel the way we feel, and sometimes we don't want to do anything to change it, and that's fine. Yeah. yeah. It's just like G.I. Joe said, knowing has half the battle. <laughs> did, you, did you not watch G.I. Joe? Watch G. I. Joe. I didn't even know what that is, yeah. Oh, yeah. maybe I guess you're a little older, I guess right? So. so, I missed that. Yeah. Yeah, G.I. Well, so I was on the cusp. I was just a little bit too old for G.I. Joe, but I, I remember watching it. My little brother watched a crap ton of G.I. Joe, but at the end of every episode they had, or almost every episode, they had a little PSA, and they would talk about, like, saying no to drugs or something. And then at the end, one of the G.I. Joe army is a cartoon, and one of the guys would say, and now I think something like, and now you know, and knowing is half the battle. And 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 as a kid, I I never knew what that meant. I still don't know what that means. You know, uh, what does that mean? Is like, so is the other half? What's the other yeah. half? Like doing doing it? Maybe yeah. they never said the other half. Like knowing is half the battle. Yeah. The other half is following through. I like they never, to my knowledge, I don't remember. But whenever I uh -huh. hear it, like you know, knowing something, I always think of GI Joe. Anyway, funny. <laughs> but yeah, so in so tell me, Bob, yeah. in in your DBT skills group class yeah. with people, how do they react in the very you know what what emergence of wisdom or understanding do you see from people in the class from sort of beginning, middle, end 
with regards to emotional awareness? You know, what are the signs? You, you've seen dozens of people come through your group, so you probably know, okay, you're in, you're in the first phase of emotional awareness, and, you know, because I see these things. Oh, you're in the middle phase. Okay, you're in the late phase. What does that look like? Hmm. Well, lots of times when people start that class, they're in some form of crisis that's led them there, because this isn't the kind of thing that, you know, like like suicide attempt. Maybe, yeah. Maybe stuff like that or maybe um, coming out of, uh, you know, drug addiction or um, maybe just um, like having lots of relationship stress. Um, um, I occasionally will have people whose spouse wants them to come and if they aren't willing to do it, then, you know, they're going to lose their relationship or whatever. Um um, so it could be lots of different things. I think when people show up in that class, there's so much newness to it. Their heads are spinning. And uh, so between whatever circumstance leads me into the class and then all the new people in the class and all this new curriculum and jargon, I think a person's head is spinning and they spend probably the first two, three months of a, we our classes for a year, two, three months of just like slowing down and becoming familiar with what we're learning. Um, and just getting their their selves immersed in you know DBT land, and then um, and then I'd say it depends. Like I don't like saying this, but the truth is, is we we don't help everybody that comes into that class. And I'd say the main difference between the ones that we help and the ones that we don't is how much are they actually practicing the skills. And I I think um, practice is hard, elusive. It often humiliating often feels so darn remedial um but i'd say the difference that when one i say this to my students all the time i'm like i know you want good outcomes i know you want things to change i want them to change too and at the same time i want you to let go of having things be different and of the skills actually quote unquote working for you and what i'd like you to do is just throw yourself at learning this stuff because as far as we know these skills help so if you're focused on, well, did it did it make things go better with my spouse, or did I get what I wanted, or um, you know, am I less ashamed uh, if that's the case, right? Um, did I avoid slipping into some kind of impulsive behavior if that's if that's what's on me? If I just focus on the outcome and I don't pay attention to um, what I'm actually doing, you know, chances are I'm not going to get a lot of outcomes because everybody has a learning curve, right? You're learning something. So maybe someone's saying, mm-hmm. you know, I, I tried the skill and I went home and I still got in a fight with my spouse. Exactly. This is failing me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's an easy conclusion to reach and a completely understandable one because, you know, the things that people are working with are really important to them and right. they want them to go well. And so, you know, they're really looking for something that is going to help this go well. But if I hang my hat on outcome, it's like saying, if I stand in the batter's box in front of a major league pitcher and I don't hit the ball, then, you know, I'm no good at baseball. You're, right. Yeah. It's okay, yeah. too much. But, but so maybe a person has to start a little smaller and maybe they have to set their sights on um, what is, what does it mean to be skillful? Because part of being skillful means just staying in the batter's box and taking a swing at the ball and m- missing even by itself isn't, doesn't isn't mean I didn't do the skill well. It means that was the first step towards learning how to hit a major league fastball, right? Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I like that. I, I have a similar 
speech that I give first quarter interns, uh, I say, so uh, you will, in your head, likely gauge success by within the first three minutes, you have solved all their problems. <laughs> that That's the way interns think. Uh-huh. You know, they think uh, they have all this energy and they mm-hmm. have all this hopes and dreams and they cram it literally into the first three minutes of therapy and they're and if they don't solve all the client's problems within the first few minutes, they, they consider themselves a total failure. And I say, what you should be gauging your success on is that if you don't run out of the room screaming in anxiety and agony, you will have succeeded in, in the first few sessions. Mm-hmm. Just the anxiety of being a professional mm-hmm. is so high that if you succeed in just kind of listening, you know, mm-hmm. through your anxiety and sitting in that chair and, uh, you know, surviving it, then that is success. You are not going to fix them. You're barely going to even be hearing them because you're going to be overthinking it. So success is you manage to not run out of the room. And actually, I told this to myself when I first became a professor. I was so scared mm-hmm. my first uh, class that I was elated that I didn't run out of the room screaming because that's what I wanted to do. Um, I, I had no idea if I taught anyone anything or if I did a good job, but I, um, I managed to stay in the room. Mm-hmm. So if, and that's what you're saying, mm-hmm. it's like, don't try to hit a home run mm-hmm. in the major leagues, but the fact that you're in the batter's box and you stayed there and you took a swing mm-hmm. and you tried, mm-hmm. that is a huge, huge success. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, a step in the right direction and maybe all that you ever really need to do, you know, because in a relationship, for example, when you stay in contact while fumbling and at least trying to think, well, my normal uh, defense is to attack or run away or to do some other compulsive behavior. And I didn't do those things. And I stayed in the conversation and I had a lot of really destructive thoughts. I might have even said some destructive things. That's not great, but I'm not going to hit a home run here. Um, I stayed in the batter's box, and I didn't do these things. You know, I didn't run away from the batter's box. I didn't, uh, you know, drink all night long as a way of coping. I didn't do X, Y, and Z. You know, I don't want to trigger people. So, you know, you can imagine other things that people involve themselves mm-hmm. in. And... Uh, or I, I just did it a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, that's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and thus I, I'm succeeding because the often people who are coming to DBT have been relationally traumatized to believe that there's something deeply wrong with them. And so they're in a constant state of beating themselves up in the most severe way. Yeah. And so you're kind of working against that mm-hmm. in the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, what do you see in terms of emotional awareness because this is something that I work a lot with clients on and have and it was a realization sort of mid-career for me that people don't know how they feel a lot of people don't even people who weren't necessarily abused growing up don't know what their emotional state is that's a fact and it it's really hard to actually kind of know what's going on and they're, they're, they're subtle cues that, and, you know, cause they're extreme anxiety or extreme anger or extreme pain. Like you're crying. It's like, Oh, I must be sad, but moderate to mild. How do you know? And so for DBT, it's incredibly important that 
people understand their emotional state and that they know their body and they can pay attention to that. And they're starting at a deficit because they were abused or neglected or didn't have attunement growing mm-hmm. up. They so or emotional mirroring, and so they just have very little acknowledgement. You know, because I've worked with clients five, ten years into therapy, and they barely understand their emotions. You know, and they know they don't understand their emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're like, yeah, my emotions. I frequently am, yeah. So in the class, what do you see with that emerging awareness in people? What is that? Because I'm interested in that because when I work with people, I, it's, it's a struggle, you know? So what do you see? I see um, a growing capacity to label that which I feel, to not, to take a compassionate, non-judgmental stance towards it, and to be able to assess what, if anything, do I want to do about it? That's what I think that's, that would be a success. Okay. And what do you see from the people of the class? Like what, what kinds of things do they say? Cause the, the, the things that I see are in the beginning, they're like, mm-hmm. I, I know that they're having an emotion, you know, like I'll say, um, so you're telling me about a fight you had with your spouse yesterday. Uh, what were you feeling at the time? And they'll be like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I was feeling like my spouse was being a jerk face, you know, that kind of stuff. Be like, okay, well, what emotion were you feeling? Uh, emotion. Um, well, uh, you know, it, it was just a really, really stupid conversation because I kept saying, you know, the, the question that, you know, they, for a second, they kind of check in with their emotions, but there's nothing there that they can detect. There's something there, but they can't mm-hmm. detect it. And then they just default to the conscious mm-hmm. mind and maybe a deeper into the conscious mind, but it's still not an emotion, you know, and I'm expecting that an emotion is down there of hurt or pain or anger. And uh, we just, so that's phase one yeah. is where I ask them how they feel. And there's like almost no talk about emotion. And, and if I really corner them, they'll say like something like, well, I don't know. What do you want me to say? You keep asking me this question. Right. <laughs> like, are, are you, do, you, do you think I was angry at the time? And I'll be like, well, I don't know. You know, it's, it's okay that you don't know, but it's, it's important for us both to know what emotions you're having. Cause, uh, and I'm guessing that it's a little hard for you based on your traumatic history. Um, and so, uh, so that's phase one. Phase two is when I am asking people about their emotions in that state, you know, they'll give me the conscious mind at first, and, but then a little bit later, they're able to say, well, I think, I think I might, you know, I, but I really have to corner them. I really have to ask the question like 10 times, you know, because it's so hard for them to know. But if I really kind of corner them and say, okay, yeah, I heard what's in your conscious mind, but I hear the thoughts, I hear the beliefs, I hear the, you know, what was the physical, you know, in your torso feeling? And they'll say, well, I don't know, as I'm talking about it, I guess I'm kind of feeling tense. Maybe that's, um, maybe that's sort of like fear or anxiety or something. And so, but it'll take a while. And in the moment, they don't know they're feeling fear. And so it takes a lot of, you know, and in the moment, they will have a vague understanding. And then they might have judgment about the self, like, well, I don't know why I was afraid. That's kind of dumb. Or they'll quickly go back to focusing on their person of like, well, you know, I was only feeling that way because my spouse is doing this and that. It's like, yeah, I get that, but let's, you know, let's stick with how, how you feel. And then sort of 
down the road, further down the road, it's something like I ask them how they felt and they'll say, oh, well, yeah, I was, I was feeling hurt. And, and I ask them, did you know you were hurt at the time? And they'll say, yeah, I was mostly aware that they were hurting my feelings, but I still got angry at them and lashed out. So those are the phases that I see. But in the DBT class, you're, you're in a year and, and, and you don't have that much one-on-one conversations with people. So uh, I'm just curious, like what kinds of things you see from people that demarcate these, these thresholds from regarding emotional awareness, or do you see that at all? Um, I can't say I see it all the time. What I see, um, the, what I see is people generally are quieter. They don't, they don't fall into crisis as much quieter. I don't mean silent, like they're stony withdrawn. I mean that they're, um, less volatile. They, um, have, um, a calmer demeanor and attitude towards self. They tend to be more compassionate. Um, they tend to be more, um, um, accurate in the way they describe their experience. So like a lot of people will experience their emotions in terms of the other person's behavior. So how are you feeling? Well, they blah, 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 right? And it's like, you're kind of hitting around at the, at the emotion, but it's always in terms of the other person's behavior. And I think when people get good at labeling, naming emotion, they're able to just sort of, well, I feel this is mine. I get, I get triggered. Uh, this is one of the things that really upsets me or really pisses me off. Um, and they're able to do that in a way that is self-validating and acknowledging. And it doesn't mean, well, I'm angry, so you're a big jerk face. It's like, well, I'm angry. This is the kind of thing that pisses me off. And um, what do I want to do about that? So they might be thoughtful about, well, okay, so what are my, do I have a goal here with this other person? Do I want to change um, something that's going on between us? And um, so because they're not as... Um, it's not that people don't feel, you know, strongly about things. It's that their feeling doesn't precipitate this sort of um, overwhelm and kind of crisis and then a f- sort of a frozen inability to um, work with what is. They tend to be more flexible and able to work with what is. I guess that's a better way to put it. Yeah, that's a really great description. And it's interesting to hear because I don't teach DBT mm-hmm. or any kind of skills class. And... I, I guess I, I have to be continually reminded that they're not your technical clients. These are yeah. people in a class yes. that are learning things. And so you don't necessarily have that one-on-one uh, back and forth. No. It's it's more like, okay, today we're going to do this curriculum and you're witnessing people's change as they interface with the curriculum and, and, mm. and their general mood, I guess, is what you're noticing mm-hmm. rather than a uh, testing for markers because that's what I do. I'm I'm testing for markers of emotional awareness through interview that might take 25 minutes of talking. And of course, that's not what DBT skills groups are about. No, curriculum driven, not person driven. So um, very much different from personal counseling or, or couple therapy. Um, since we just weld ourselves to that curriculum and work our way through it week to week to week. Well, Bob, uh, let's take a break, and when we get back, let's continue. What do you say? Yes. All right, we're back from the break, Bob. I have a very long list of emails here, and we've only gotten to one. So (laughs) 
<laughs> Sounds like us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anonymous upper tier patron Michelle. Wait, no, no. Upper tier patron Michelle from the North Hills, so it's not anonymous. Upper tier patron Michelle from North Hills. I wonder where that is. North Hills. Sounds like California or something. I don't know. Hmm. From North Hills says, Hi, Dr. Honda and Bob. I am currently in therapy. I think I may be on the borderline spectrum and preoccupied. I have already been through a few therapists and I'm struggling with a lot of self-doubt as to whether it's really just not a good match or if I'm running from them when I feel rejected by them. In one case, my therapist seemed to not be a good match and she forgot to schedule my next appointment and did not ever reach out to me, so I took it as rejection and moved on. Now I am struggling to identify whether these behaviors are part of my preoccupied borderline tendencies or if I'm right to move on after a therapist exhibits what I interpret as carelessness for me in our early relationship. Bob, what do you think? I think it would have been extraordinarily difficult to ask that therapist what happened because you didn't follow up and you didn't reschedule with me. But that might be the only way to actually collect data about whether or not to find out if your interpretation of their behavior is accurate. It might be accurate. It also might be hard to get because it might be a therapist would be hard pressed to say, yeah, this is the way of me letting you know, I don't want to work with you. Um, um, they might have their own difficulty with uh, being direct or um, um, forthcoming, candid. So I don't know. One of the things that you know about yourself is that you're vulnerable to a certain kind of interpretation, which I think is good because it allows for the possibility that it is. It's the that that part of me that has that kind of interpretation as opposed to I I think it it must be so. So I, I like that. I think that's in your favor. And I don't know how to advise you about finding a therapist. I think that if you stick with it, though, eventually you will. And um, as your relationship with that therapist grows, hopefully that will become um, an arena uh, um, through which or in which you can test your hypotheses about, well, are they rejecting me or do they care about me, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. The thing I'll say is similar to what Bob is saying. It's hard to know. Um, you're saying that you've been through a number of therapists and you have felt like it wasn't working out fairly early on. You felt hurt by them. And then you are moving on to a different therapist. So it could be that they're just not a good fit. And that's a good thing that you're trying to find a good fit. Mm -hmm. It could be that these are bad therapists and you're just moving on from bad therapy, which mm -hmm. is something that I wouldn't have thought until I got all these emails from people telling me about therapists that have done ridiculous things. Or it could be your disorganized attachment, borderline preoccupied issue. You know, the, uh, when you say you're preoccupied, but, you know, there's a possibility that it could be a little bit disorganized in there as well. Obviously, you can't know you because there's no way to know. But mm -hmm. with disorganized, if with people who will identify as borderline, they often will also be conceptualized as disorganized in that when they were young, their attachment figures were were scary individuals. And so at, as the child was scared, they had an impulse to run toward their caregiver, but their caregiver was either the source of the fear or at least 
could be a source of the of fear mm-hmm. and so the child was stuck between running toward and running away and mm-hmm. that is a terror rising place to be and when you are looking for therapy to heal from relational traumas you're you're running toward but because of your working model of other you have a terror of the other so and particularly the closer you get and the more vulnerable you get the more chance you can be hurt by this person, mm. the more fear you have, and the more your emotions will distort your perspective. Yeah, the, you say that someone, see, uh, she forgot to schedule my next appointment. Well, it's possible, I don't know, but I, it's hard to know what that means. You know, like, uh, maybe that's actually what happened, but it's also possible that it you're narrativizing that in a, way that is uh, rejecting of you you know you're you're seeing the therapist as like either neglectful or just didn't care about you when the therapist like i have no idea obviously michelle but there's a chance that you know sometimes when i meet with people in the beginning of therapy i will uh really give the client a chance to terminate with me because i don't want to pressure them into so sometimes at the end of sessions i will say something like uh, in the beginning, I'll say something like, so would you like to make an appointment or would you like to think about it? You know, I'll say something like that. And uh, this isn't, Michelle, what you're saying, your therapist did, but I could, but I say that and I always worry that some clients will see it as me saying, I don't want to work with you. Right. And uh, so I don't know if that's what your therapist did. I, obviously, there are mistakes that therapists make there's some therapists that don't know what they're doing there are misunderstandings um but if you're seeing a pattern you know it it could be an issue the problem is in order to really know you have to go to therapy (laughs) long term (laughs) so uh now what i would say is keep looking and maybe quote unquote a good fit is a very particular sort of therapist that really nails it in the first couple sessions to make you feel safe so much so that this isn't really a question. Um, and that's okay. You know, if it, let's just say it's possible that you're just, you have an extremely narrow definition or extremely narrow sort of therapist that you need. And you just got to try 15 before you find that one, you know, and, and you tried three and maybe it's you, maybe it's them, maybe it's both, but you just haven't found the right one. Keep going. And then mm-hmm. once you find the good one, hold on to them. Uh, Emma from Norway says, In my last relationship, I felt jealous all the time. My, my boyfriend never cheated on me, but I always felt lied to, and I kept visualizing him cheating on me. I would see it in my mind. I feel scarred somehow by those visualizations. Like I don't want a new boyfriend ever, ever, if, if nothing. I like I don't want a new boyfriend ever ever even oh sorry ever even if nothing happened is it possible that I'm traumatizing myself with these visualizations Bob what do you think yeah I'd say that they're definitely traumatizing you they're t- giving they're you're uh, end up teaching yourself that you know boyfriends are dangerous creatures and one should avoid them so that one doesn't have to go through the hell of being cheated on which let's be clear is really hellish so um if they're not cheating, then yeah, I'd say you're scaring the hell out of yourself. You could call that traumatizing, sure. Yeah. Do you ever do that to yourself? Like, 
visualize in a state of fear. And then even though you're like, I know that didn't happen, it still plagues you. Oh, yeah. Well, I did get cheated on once and that did plague me into my uh, relationship with Colleen. Someone cheated so, on you before Colleen. Yeah, before Colleen. Yeah. But do you ever visualize, and you don't have to answer this question if oh, it's sure. too personal, but do you ever have a visual that pops in your head about Colleen and it, even though it's, you know, it wasn't cheating or something, you know, that actually happened, it, that it'll plague you? Oh yeah, yeah. I can I can get obsessed like that and have those terrible horror movies in my head and think that um, I'm in danger when I'm not. I'd say COVID's really been a strange year in that we don't we don't see anybody else. Right. She and me. Um, so, so any worry about cheating kind of doesn't seem practical under the certain circ under these yeah. circumstances. Yeah. Right. But like she's talking about when when COVID's over, she's interested in getting on a, like a rowing team. Yeah. You know, and you know, the picture I have in my head is it's a bunch of the outdoors types that they have up here in the Northwest, of, yeah. which I'm not a member of that tribe. Yeah. Um, and she's going to go to rowing and she's going to meet some really tall, good looking guy who's well, yeah, got great lats. He's, you know, you just got to figure. Yeah. Just gigantic body lats. And yeah. he's got a resting heart rate of 12 and <laughs> right. And handsome and charming. And she's going to be enamored. Wait, of him. Let, me, let me, let me, let's drill down. So is he have a top bun or is he kind of one of those clean shaven guys? What's a top bun? Uh, like a top, like a, like a ponytail on the top oh. of the head. I don't see the ponytail. I see dark hair. Cause she likes dark hair guys. And I see like that, you know, like grizzled Don Johnson unshaved thing that, you know. Yeah. Um, and sweaty, but like handsome. Yeah. yeah. And like defined biceps. Oh. oh, beautiful arms. Yeah. Yeah. Good looking guy. Yeah. Is he wearing a tank top or? Oh, yeah. It's got the tank top and the shorts and the um, running shoes with no socks and beautiful muscular legs. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, I see him. He's hot. I, I'd do him. <laughs> right. And she's going to find that guy and they're going to share this interest because Colleen's got that kind of outdoor streak in her and they're going to share that interest. And I don't actually like it's just not what I am. So yeah. I don't. I don't have that in common and that's what she wants and she's going to run off and be with that guy. I told her about this. She was, we were talking about what do we want to do after COVID and she was mentioning that she wanted to get on rowing and you know, the wise part of me is like, yeah, babe, you should do it. I want you to do it. It's a really good idea. You'll enjoy it. It's good to have a community, et cetera, et cetera, all the good things about it. And then the other part of me, the anxious, um, um, I guess you could call it jealous part of me is like, shit, you're going to meet somebody and they're going to be cooler than me. Yeah. What do you do with right? that? Nothing. What do you mean? I, I said it. I mean, I told her. Well, that's said, something. That's, yeah, that's something. But, you know, beyond that, there's, uh, it's the kind of thing I tell myself. So it's the kind of thing that scares me. I mean, it really is. It's like a horror movie. And really at this point, all it is, is a horror movie. And I say to myself, Bob, you know, I don't know, I guess it could happen, but you know, you don't want a life where Colleen can't go be on a rowing team because you get scared. That sounds kind of like white knuckling it, though. That that sounds like yeah. a sucky kind of space for you to be in. It is kind of sucky. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is there no other way? Is I don't know. It... You got something in mind? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, well, talking about it out loud right now, is it what's going through your mind? I feel sad. 
I feel sad because I don't like feeling this way. And I feel sad because the possibility of it feels more real than it really is. You know, when we're scared, we turn possibility into probability. So my brain is doing that a little bit right now. Um, um, you know, I guess, all right. I guess what I'm thinking is what I need is I need some reassurance, babe, that if you find somebody and they're really beautiful and you find yourself attracted, that you'll talk to me about it before you do anything. And that we'll have a shot at whatever it is that's unfulfilled in you, that maybe we can find a way to fulfill it so that you don't have to leave in order to get your need met. I guess I could I could say that. It sounds kind of dire, doesn't it? No, I uh, could extend that by, I mean, because Colleen loves you. Yeah. She doesn't want you to feel jealous. No. She doesn't want to cheat on you. No. She isn't. She, if she if she met that fictional guy, she'd be like, "But Bob's the best. Bob ain't a rower, but Bob's the best." I don't know. Maybe. Bob, but well, you can at least imagine Colleen thinks that. I have a hard time imagining that, and that's that's really about me, not about Colleen. I know, but I, yeah. but well, this is all about you and your traumas. But, Indeed, it is. But the uh, but that's a fact, so you can. Can that seep? Can that seep in a, a little bit? Like, yeah, that, come on, Bob. You, you're saying, Bob, give it a shot. Try it on. Colleen thinks you're the best. Try yeah, it on. Yeah. There is within me, ninety-two um, percent unwillingness to um, entertain that, and eight percent that's give me relief. That gives me relief. Yeah. So it's in there. It's. I mean, it's getting in. That's that's success. Yeah. So. She doesn't want to cheat on you because you're the best. She doesn't want to cheat on me because I'm the best. She mm. doesn't like um, dark-haired uh, lat. I, I always want to focus on the lats because, you know, when you're doing rowing, it's not oh, a lot of lats. Get the lats, man. Yeah. <laughs> lats, yeah. man. That's his name. Um, uh, <laughs> she, 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 you know, your bestness eclipses lats, man. Your, your bestness muscles are better than, are bigger than his lats, you know? Mm-hmm. And she doesn't. She doesn't want to threaten that. She doesn't want to leave that. That you know, uh, her love for you isn't so tenuous that just coming across an attractive man, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's not going to just snap the thread that was holding this whole thing together. You know, right. like it's strong. Her. That's my. That's my horror movie. Yeah. Do you know when Colleen and I met, we met on, on one of the dating apps, right? The dating, well, they didn't have apps, but then they had websites. We met on one of the websites and, um, you know, like all people do, we were both, you know, dating other people or whatever. And she'd met this guy and she had gone on a couple of dates with him and had known him for a couple of weeks. And she met me around the same time. And at some point a person, you know, comes to the crossroads where they decide, well, do I want to pursue this one or that one? And she said, um, you know, on paper, we're, you know, I like these things and you like those things. On paper, you know, that guy was in some ways a better match for me, but I don't regret choosing you. And I said to her, that's the first time ever anybody ever chose me over somebody else they were dating. I've had the other experience um, where they say, well, you know, blah, 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 I met somebody and I'm going to go pursue that. But never I heard somebody say, yeah, you know, I had a choice and I chose you. That was really nice. Hmm. And then she went on a hike with him, and and the boots that she was wearing were a problem, and so her big toenail fell off. Oh my! It fell off. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it took a while, but yeah, it came off. 
That and happened I, to I me. Think. Yeah. Because uh, a bully actually uh, stomped on my foot oh. for no for no reason. Yeah. And it, uh, my foot was, it was during the mid 80s when guys weren't wearing socks because we all yeah. thought we lived in California, even <laughs> though we lived in Seattle. And also penny loafers were really, and, oh, sure. and speary boat shoes like from Risky oh, yeah. Business with Tom uh-huh. Cruise. Tom Cruise, yeah. Um, and uh, he, he stomped on my foot and pushed me down. And um, I was like, I didn't even know the guy. And then when I got home and my foot thawed out, my, uh, my toenail came right off. Damn. I ran into him at Dante's, uh, the bar. Holy uh, cow, Dante's. Yeah, when we were in college. Wow. And I... Uh, confronted him and I thought we were going to get in a fight because I was like, finally I was like, here, yeah. cause he was bigger. He's a lot older when I was a kid yeah. and I was just like, okay, let's, you know, now that I'm, you know, your size, let's, let's, let's make mm-hmm. this happen. And he just looked down at his feet and, and his friends who were friends with him back then. And I recognized the whole crew. Mm-hmm. They all just looked at him cause I was like, do you know what you did? And I'm sort of like, you know, yeah provoking him and the friends were like you did what to this guy like why Mm. did you do that to him and he just Mm. looked down at the ground and i was like huh this didn't go how i thought it was gonna go (laughs) and i just sort of well it was nice reminiscing and i just turned around (laughs) walked away (laughs) but um but another thing bob so you recall this very early story from how long 20 18 years ago how long was that Oh, it'd be 16 years, man. 16 years ago, uh, as some kind of uh, reassurance, you, you, you got to have some stories today. You know, you need yeah, stories you need now. Update, huh? So you need, like, her to come home from rowing and saying, so there's a super hot guy with gigantic lats, lat man, we're going to call him from now on. Uh-huh. He is shit compared to you. He is a, he is a, a moldy pile of poo. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to you, Bob, I love you for these 10 reasons, and there's just nothing that's going to take me away from, from you, and hmm. I'm attracted to you, I love you, I want to be, uh, you know, you need an update. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You could ask for it, and I'm, I'm, if you did it nicely, she'd probably do it, right? Yeah, she actually gave me an update last week, and I did what I do, which is I kind of I didn't blow it off because that's just bad manners, but I I sort of became Teflon to it. What the update? What what was the update? She's like, you look good. You know, we've been we've been um, uh, working hard actually at it. We've been wanting to lose some weight. We got our COVID. They call it COVID nineteen for a reason, right? Nineteen <laughs> pounds. Um, um, and so we've been um, watching what we eat and trying to get a little bit healthier. And and she said to me the other day. You know, you look good. And I don't, I don't, you know, that doesn't resonate with my self in the world view. So I become Teflon to it. I don't say anything and I get a little squirmy inside, but I definitely wasn't taking it in. And it's so automatic that if you and me weren't talking about it, that would just be like the stranger that just brushes by you in the crowd and you never see him again. That would be that, that, that comment was. And now you and me are slowing down and we're getting to talk about it. And I get to see both my automatic response to that kind of care and interest and, you know, attraction or whatever. And um, so both see her care 
and her interest and her attraction and also my response to it. And I kind of feel sad for both of us, sad for her because there's a pleasure in being having your compliment taken by the other. That's definitely, I mean, that's half of why people give compliments is so that they can be, so that it feels good when the other person can, can receive it. And then sad for me for um, having such a hard time with something that's, you know, simple, natural, straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. What if you, as she goes out the door to row, you tell her all this. She listens to the podcast, doesn't she? Uh, not often, but sometimes. Well, tell her to listen to this one. Okay. Colleen, uh, I'm going to ask you on behalf of my friend Bob that uh, when you get back and before <laughs> you leave, uh, that especially when you get back, that you just you know reassure the crap out of him and the eight percent of him that is uh, you know managed to grow in response to all your corrective experiences with him will soak that in, and it will uh, help and push him to eight point five percent and. Mm-hmm. Also, will you know stave off any kind of weird mood he'll get into, um, mm. you know, it, as he white knuckles it because he feels ashamed to ask for help. Mm. Can you do that, Colleen? You don't have to. I'm just asking as a friend. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think she'd say? I think she'd say, yeah. Well, we'll see what happens if she listens to this one and then what happens. It'd be kind of, it'd be fun. Yeah. Because I, I can imagine, I don't know Colleen's way in this way, but I I can imagine uh, for some people in her position, it's like, but I'm not, I, I'm, I've, one, I'm not looking for another man. Mm-hmm. Two, I don't feel attractive to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, who does he think I am? Does he think that... People want to be with, you know, a lot of people are walking around with real low self-esteem about sure. like, I, I don't think that's even on the table. For, I don't, I'm not even thinking about that. Three, you know, I'm old. I'm in a relate. I, I don't, I don't, I'm beyond that phase of life. Like that, that just doesn't cross my mind. I'm, you know, I'm just trying to make friends. I'm I, really 99% of me is focused on just not making a fool out of myself. I, there, there's really nothing beyond that. I, I'm not, I'm not on the prowl. Um, uh, four, I really love my spouse, and yeah, I just if going rowing is somehow going to cause me to cheat, like I would have cheated a long time ago. I don't want to cheat. I don't want to mm-hmm. be with anyone else. Mm-hmm. I like where I'm at. It's complicated to go down those roads. Mm-hmm. It's I don't want to lose my partner. If anything, I'm worried that when I'm rowing, my partner's going to be cheating on me because I'm not going to be home watching him all the time. You know, <laughs> you know. That, I, I think that's normally what is happening. And so, uh, the idea of like, wait, so you're that worried about that with me? You know, like, why are you worried about that with me? Uh, why would you worry about that? And uh, because we suppress it and we keep it underground and we let it fester and we shame ourselves. And I think jealousy is extremely normal. Yeah. And in the olden days, we were all sort of quarantined because our tribe was 35 people and our spouse was never out of our eyesight. (laughs) And uh, so the way our world works today with, especially with devices, 
your partner could be cheating on you while they're sitting right next to you at the movie theater. And it's a constant threat that is innate to our, uh, you know, our attachment proximity, you know, detection meters. I'm quite Mm -hmm. positive that, you know, in the Pleistocene, we would have been uh, at least for a time, there's theories that say like we would bond for like seven years or something long enough to have a child and raise Mm -hmm. it. And during that time, we, when we saw our spouse uh, being around someone else, it would concern us. And, and so we would just go over and stand next to our spouse and just kind of like ask for reassurance or physical or something. But today, one, we shame the whole thing. And two, mm. you might not be around your spouse, but like 15 minutes a day, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even in the same house, because you both might have your own offices or whatever. Yeah. And uh, it's it's not natural. It it, it triggers, I think, a, a jealousy response. And so I think it's real normal. And one of the ways to cope with it is to get anxious and demanding or controlling. Another one is the distance, is just to mm-hmm. say... My my love for this person is too painful and too scary, and so I'm just going to drift away emotionally because it, mm-hmm. it's just easier to be alone, which of course, you know, denies one's attachment needs. But but anyway, mm-hmm. so I think you have exhibited a wonderful example for everyone, mm. as you usually do, because I know a lot of people listening have jealous as a jealousy, as a concern. Yeah. And you, you know, I think, in fact, let's just, I think there's another email about jealousy. Yeah. Mm. Uh, DTD. And my last phrase, i jealous all the time. Scar. Oh no, I just read that one. Was there another jealousy one? Um, there's one about a friend. Let me get to it. Uh, let's see. DTD one day per week. No, uh, just self hatred. No, preoccupied boyfriend attached to us and cry. No, Sorry, I'm, I'm getting there. Uh, blah, 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 no. Um, is it this one? Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's the next one. <laughs> mm-hmm. So one more uh, email and then we'll adjourn. Anonymous patron from Korea says, I have been dating my boyfriend for four months. His best friend is a girl. They have been best friends for over 18 years. Also, my ex-boyfriend, my previous boyfriend, cheated on me with his friend. And ever since, I've been traumatized. And whenever I find out that the man that I'm interested in has a very close girlfriend, I get real scared. Mm. When I told him my feelings, he told her that they should stop talking to each other. Mm. Uh, my, you know, my boyfriend and, and his friend. The friend understood this and they haven't been talking at all. I feel guilty about this though. Our relationship is great and I love him. However, sometimes these thoughts of jealousy pop up to my mind, especially when he's asleep and not talking to me or not talking to me. No matter how many times I sleep with him, I'll never be able to get to know him as she did, the best friend. I get extremely jealous and mad. I really hate myself for doing this. I really want these thoughts to go away, and I really hope this doesn't ruin our relationship. Is this normal for me to act this way, or is it associated with my preoccupied attachment issues? Bob, what do you think? Uh, The first thing that came to mind is it's kind of sad that he had to let go of his friendship with his friend, um... And uh, I don't know. Could you be included? Like, could she become your friend too? Mm. You know, like, why not? Why not? Um, why not have that? 
so that um, you can feel safe and comfortable and have a sense that um, their friendship is platonic and that they, you know, they're buddies. But that's that's kind of the limits of the thing and that he's with you and he wants to be with you and he doesn't have this kind of separate part of his life and you're kind of wondering, etc. So can 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 you become friends with her? Can you just, you know, and you, maybe your friendship with her would never be as deep as the one that that she and he share. But that's okay. It doesn't have to be the same as theirs. So that's the one thought I had. And the other thought I had is you're, you're saying no matter how many times I sleep with him, I'll never be as close to her as she is. It's almost like you're saying it'll always, he'll always have that sort of special, unique and better thing with her. And it negates the, it sort of negates, well, you know, this guy is loves me so much that he actually ended his friendship with his best friend so that he could maintain his relationship with me because he wants me and he wants me to feel good. And, um, that's, that's pretty special. Like that's, you must be special to him in order for him to be willing to do that. And my guess is that over time, as you guys grow together, that, um, maybe what you have won't look like what he shares with his other friend, because whose friendships are like, relationships always have their own uniquenesses, their own bits to them that are sort of their own magic. And um, maybe for you and him, there'll be that. There'll be some magic around what you guys share and and um, something worth being jealous of. Like maybe she'll look at that and say, the friend will look at that and say, wow, you guys sure are lucky. Look at this beautiful thing that you have. Yeah. 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 I like that. You know, becoming friends with her mm-hmm. would probably make her feel more secure mm-hmm. because she would like her and feel Mm -hmm. like, oh, I can trust this person. Yeah. Um, So there's a number of different things here. And of course, we can't know what's going on with you because you're not our client. But, you know, you're saying, you know, is this preoccupation? Well, I will tell you that there's a lot of um, markers. And the way this works is that when you're being raised by inconsistent parenting, you learn unless I game the system, I'm not going to get my needs met. And one of the ways you game the system is to neurologically have a constant state of worry because if you instinctually have a constant state of worry then that will motivate you to constantly be hyper vigilant on is this person safe is this can am i going to get my needs met attachment wise through this person that's why we call it preoccupations because it's you're preoccupied with attachments and it's a constant thought and one of the thoughts that will enter one's mind is this this person's going to leave me this person's going to leave me this person's going to leave me and if you constantly, it's sort of like if you're w- walking on a tightrope uh, in the circus and you start daydreaming about, uh, you know, what you're going to eat for dinner, you, you might fall off the tightrope, right? Because you're distracted. So if you're going to stay on the tightrope and you're going to survive, you're not going to die, you got to focus. You can't, you can't daydream. You can't think about other things. You got to be preoccupied with balance. Because it's life or death. And so when you were small, that was the reality. You had to be in a constant state of focus and a constant state of hypervigilance and a constant state of fear. Otherwise, you would lose focus and you would be abandoned. And the problem, though, is that you probably were abandoned anyway, is the thing. And that, that's, the, mm. that's the problem. And so as an adult, you retain that, that neurological reality and that belief system and those schemas. And so there's a constant state of hypervigilance and, and an assumption that at any moment you can fall to your death if you don't focus on the task at hand, the balance 
or the you know the attachment uh, proximity. And so anything that could be a threat is a threat. It's sort of like you're on the tightrope and you see out of the corner of your eye a flag in the, you know, sort of uh, blowing in the wind a little bit more than usual. And you're like, whoa, maybe there's a gust of wind coming this way and I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to fly off this tire. It doesn't necessarily mean that, right? But you, you're hypervigilant and you're very concerned because you don't want to die. So you see that, you see that flap in the, in the flag a little bit, a little bit more intense and you're, okay, you know, that that's rational. So when you're in a relationship and you're walking that tightrope of attachment and you're like, hey, he has a, he has a best friend. It's a woman, you know, and it's, it's a concern, you know, it, it's not necessarily a life or death. It's not, doesn't mean that you're going to fall off the tightrope. It doesn't mean, you know, that it doesn't mean that the person's necessarily going to cheat on you and leave you, but it's rational given the preoccupation to say, oh, but what if? You know, if it's a 1% chance that that gust of wind is going to push me off, I don't want to take that risk. I'd rather have 0% chance of dying than a 1% chance of dying. And so I would rather have a 0% chance of my partner cheating on me than a 1% chance of my partner cheating on me. Because if my partner cheated, cheats on me based on my neurology, based on the way I was raised, it it is a matter of life and death because it was a matter of life and death when you were two years old because for children to be abandoned it is a matter of life and death and so it, it feels that way and so everything even though rationally you're like well i'm pretty sure he's not gonna cheat on me but what if and mm-hmm. so the healing is therapy of course individual and or couple therapy um now the other thing here is that when you are experiencing that kind of childhood, you often will have a lot of self-hatred as well, because you're being treated in a way that isn't very good to you. And so we develop this idea of just like, it must be me. Mm-hmm. I must be the problem. Yeah. And that can also play into this as well, because you just think, well, no one wants to be with me because I'm a, I'm inherently a bad person. You know what I mean? Uh, so, you know, is it normal? I don't know. You know, it's not uncommon to worry about rejection. It's not uncommon to be jealous, but, um, and it's not uncommon for people to say, I don't want you to have a best friend that, you know, can threaten our relationship. Um, it's not uncommon to feel that way, but it does have some markers of preoccupation. Of course, you want to talk to your therapist about it. But you do mention this, something that I've never talked about before, but I have seen in preoccupied individuals, which is, you know, she says here, sometimes these thoughts of jealousy pop up in my mind, especially when he's asleep. Have you ever heard of that before, Bob? No. I've seen that before, where it doesn't make rational sense, right? Because the person's sleeping, so mm-hmm. the person can't cheat on you, or the, you know they can't leave you. But the person is unavailable. They're unavailable, and a, a person might even have traumas as a child with a sleeping parent or a passed out parent from right. s- from intoxication. Right, and the sleeping spouse or partner, it feels threatening. It feels lonely. And then it can trigger someone's right. preoccupation um, to the point where the preoccupied individual will just literally stare at the sleeping person, <laughs> hoping that they wake up or even try to wake them up mm-hmm. as a way. And it can be taken to an extreme where this can actually become abusive, where the abusive individual will actually get angry when the person falls asleep, you know, because they're tired anyway. Yeah. So... That was those emails, All right. and I, th- I thought we'd get to more, 
but I, I thought I, th- I think we did some really. I think you actually did some well, really great, um, uh, deeper conversations about things. Final word, Bob, on today's episode. Well, we often bite off more than we can chew, or we always have our eyes are no, no eyes are bigger than our stomach. Isn't that the one? That's the one where you, you you're hoping for more than you can actually. Yeah. So that sounds like typical for us. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And screw Latman. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.